Welcome to another podcast from Best Self Magazine, the leading voice for self-empowerment, holistic health, and authentic living. Ruth King is an international insight meditation teacher, life coach, diversity consultant, and author with a master's in psychology. She previously managed training and organizational development divisions for large corporations where she designed diversity awareness programs. Ruth is referred to as the teacher of teachers and the consultant of consultants who teaches the Mindful of Race training program, which blends mindfulness meditation principles with an exploration of our racial conditioning, its impact, and our potential. Her latest book, Mindful of Race, Transforming Racism from the Inside Out, has been referred to as Healing Medicine for the Suffering of Racism. Thank you for sitting down with Best Self Magazine today, Ruth, and for inviting us into your lovely home. I knew the moment that your publisher got this book (laughs) into my hands that I had to explore a way to have this conversation with you. But I also want to be honest in saying that this was a tough one to prepare for. You know, it's an enormous conversation. It's a much-needed conversation, but it's also an uncomfortable one. And it was interesting to observe my own feelings around it in preparation. Yeah. You're in the zone. <laughs> I'm in it. We're in it now, right? We are in this together. Are we ready to go? That's right. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah. Let's do it. So, you know, I'm honored to be here with you today. Mm. Um, I'm honored by this beautiful and powerful book, and I'm honored for your role and your willingness in, in trying to shift this narrative. Um, so let's just dive right in. And, and I want to say that you had me at the title of your first chapter, mm. where you said, racism is a heart disease and it's curable. With regards to that, I'm just going to quote you because there's just, <laughs> there's just so much goodness in here and then I'm going to be quiet. I'm going to let you take over. With regards to our reaction to that word, racism, you said something alarming happens when we think or hear the word racism. Something deep within us is awakened into fear. All of us, regardless of our race and our experience of race, get triggered and more than the moment is at play. That word picks at an existential scab, some level of dis-ease at the mere insinuation of the word, some itch that we can't seem to scratch, or some fear we believe will harm us. This activation happens to all of us. Yes, it's true. It's true, and I notice even when you were talking about preparing for this and uh, just trying to get our arms around the scope and um, our own feelings and... Um, our good intentions, uh, it's, it's a lot to, to get our arms around, and yet it's necessary. That's the whole point. I feel the enormity of responsibility to try mm-hmm. to explore this with you, um, to explore this for myself, to explore this for my son, to explore this for my legacy, mm-hmm. to explore this for my community, and yet I'm... Tenuous, you know, I'm a little bit afraid, or I don't want to say that, or I don't want to touch here, or yeah, yeah. You know, it, it just activates a lot of different things. It so it's really interesting. Yeah. 
And that's the point. Yeah. And one of the things I talk about in the book is discomfort as a core competency for waking up in this area. Mm -hmm. So if if we're not uncomfortable, if we're not feeling some degree of itch or scratch, then, you know, it's difficult to wake up, you know, because it gets our attention. The balance of interest in wanting to go there, but also the gravitational pull to not go there is at play. And, and yet here we are. Right. Yeah. Willing to, to crack this one open. Right. Well, I'll just start by saying that what I love about this book is that it's not just about pointing out the obvious and pointing out that we've got some cracking open to do. Mm-hmm. It's it's the fact that you have really cracked open a new conversation and and there's some tangible, actionable things that we can do to sort of guide ourselves and to to look at this differently. But I don't want to get too far ahead of that because <laughs> we've got so much to yeah. to to dive into. But, but well, let's start at the beginning. Where do we begin? How do we begin? Um, because we are gripped in this conversation. Something happens to us. And, and as you pointed out in the book, we, we have these sort of default settings or weapons um, that we resort to mm-hmm. when we find ourselves um, in this conversation or activated. And for yeah. some, that, that's fear. For some, that's anger. And for many of us, it's defensiveness. Yeah. Well, I think we begin with the intention to want to begin again and again, because it's not like we start this conversation and then we have it and we're done. It's a, it's a conversation that I think ought to become as normative as eating breakfast. I mean, one of the things that's so interesting about race is why it's hard to actually say the R word and racism, uh, race or racism. So um, really having the intention that you are going to be in this conversation, you're not going to turn away from it, you're going to give it some time, Um, you're going to let it be your teacher for a while, and then you're going to see how it teaches you how to be more human. Mm -hmm. I think that's a big part of what invoking the intention to be in this conversation, to learn from it. Um, to learn about what we don't know, to question the lies we've been told, to decide um, our scope around how we see humanity is going to be broader than it has habitually been. I think that you you have to start from that intention, because if you don't have that intention and you just kind of fall into the conversation, uh, it's easy to um, find an exit door. Mm -hmm. But if you have the intention and you remind yourself of the intention... I'm giving this my all. I'm, I'm going to be curious instead of critical. I'm going to open my heart to this. I'm going to pause a little bit more here just so I can be with what's happening right here so that I can learn what I need to learn. I think that's fundamental to beginning this conversation. It's not the kind of conversation we can casually go into. I often say to people that if you're going to talk about race to people, make sure you have their consent. Mm. Because if you start moving into this conversation and people haven't consented to having it, you waste a lot of energy. Sometimes you have to go there and you just have to point some things out and let go of the outcome. But if you want to develop a relationship with someone around this topic, if you want to be in a relational field with this conversation, with this distress, this global distress that we're all living in, some of us realize that and some of us don't, 
just how core race is to a lot of what we're seeing in the world. Um, if you if you're wanting to go there and learn from it, then you need consent. You need a certain understanding with someone before you plunge in, share your opinion, you know, uh, deepen the understanding and the conversation. Um, I don't want to waste my energy at this stage of my life talking about this unless I have an understanding that we're we're um, trying to do this together. Right. I mean, relationally. I think in my activism world, it's a different kind of energy. Right. But in my relational world, I'm very particular about how I am working my energy to make sure it's purposeful, it's having impact. Well, I also was thinking, just as you were speaking, that really the conversation, before we go out into the world and have the conversation, we've got to have the conversation with ourselves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, first of all, observing our defensiveness. If yeah. defensiveness rises up, why? Yeah. What, what's, at the, what's at the core of that? You That's had right. two great prompts for people in the book where you said everyone should ask themselves these two questions. Mm-hmm. One, um, why, why are matters of race still a concern across the nation and throughout the world? Mm-hmm. And two, what does this have to do with me? Yeah, exactly. You said also in the book that this book was not an attempt to resolve the racial injustice that pervades society. No book can do that. Rather, it offers a framework for understanding racism and our role in it, as well as mindful strategies that reduce mental distress and increase clarity, stability, and well-being. This, in turn, supports us in responding more wisely to racial injustice, both internally and externally. Yes, yes. I love the subtitle of the book, Transforming Racism from the Inside Out, Mm -hmm. because I do think there's something to be said for how we work with our own activation, our own uh, relationship to how we've been conditioned to to relate to this topic, the automatic, habitual ways that we are in relationship to race and racism, the stories we've been told that that might need to be questioned instead of just automatically um, riding along and because it's something we're used to. And this starts with inside. There's a there's a contraction that we feel in this topic. Mm. You know, our stomachs get tight. Some people have shared being nauseated, uh, feeling faint, or um, going numb. And then people, of course, can be just outraged and belligerent about it and, and have all the proof one can imagine to right. back that up. But what's fundamental to all of that is how we're gripped inside. And there's something about working with that grip that's important because if we ignore it then we're acting out on it then then our response to this uh, and these conversations get so morphed and distorted that it's difficult to feel like you're connecting i remember right. being in an enraged situation not that long ago <laughs> you know it's kind of hard to you believe know? knowing right? you i mean it's right. kind of like i got really pissed off and in the midst of it and this is a mindful piece you know in the midst of it what i recognized so clearly is how i had vacated the premises i was not in my body i felt like i was um up in the ethers i didn't have any connection with my body or my breath uh, and when I, d- when I caught myself and came back to that, it was quite noticeable. There is a big difference when you are How out you of your it? body versus coming back into your body. 
So how did you do that? Well, uh, because I'm in this, I have a mindfulness meditation practice. I'm in the habit of conditioning my mind to, to be able to come back to the present moment again and again and again. So it was, it was catching myself, not blaming myself for the fact that I was righteously in a rage, but catching myself and noticing the impact it was having on me. I was really hurting inside. And what I noticed was that I, left because I was feeling so horrible. And these are things we can become more acquainted with and attend to. We need to care for that contraction, that suffering that we're in in those moments. When we leave our domain, we leave our power base, we become ungrounded, and then our good intention gets diffused Mm -hmm. and not have the potency it needs to actually make a difference and make your point and, and get your point heard. So that's a real important, so important. thing to attend so to. And, and it, really, that's a life skill yeah. to just right, kind of help us get through this right. human experience, right. you know, no matter what the subject, really, because, I mean, I was actually visualizing that, you know, that scared little girl and you runs out of the room and is going to yeah. hide under the bed um, right. and then have a temper tantrum and, you know, but you've got to say, come back. It's okay. Yeah. We're, you know, your yeah. feelings are validated, but we can... We can handle this. We can. You know what's this. interesting in moments like that, when, when and I've noticed this in myself and with the number of people that I've worked with, is that when you fly off like that, there's there's a need happening. There's a need. You're wanting a need to be taken care of in that moment, but you're expecting it to come externally, and it's just so unlikely that who you're pissed off at is going to actually come back around and take care of it. It's just well, why not, right? <laughs> right. So it's there's a certain delusion in the thinking. Right. Um, if you're expecting the care to come from the very person you're in attack mode with. So it's important that you care for yourself in those right. moments and not get um, so far removed from yourself that you forget that you're suffering. I often tell people it's kind of like if... If you see a, a hit-and-run driver who's hit the child and then kept going, what are you going to do, run after the car or go take care of the child? And I think we need mm-hmm. to remember to take care of the child, the part of us that's hurting and needing and suffering. That is a really, really powerful metaphor. Yeah. That's going to stick with me. Yeah. Speaking of metaphors, mm. you take this ugly R word, racism, and you give it a beautiful metaphor in the book as you divide the chapters of the book into three parts, into three sections, um, using the heart. And you, part one is diagnosis. Part two is heart surgery. And part three is recovery. Yeah. And you have this gorgeous line um, from diagnosis part one, where you say, when you're referring to the exploration the exploration of diagnosing what what is what is going on. Mm-hmm. The following chapters are offered to help us understand the habits of mind that got us here, and how we can get the blood circulating again through the heart of humanity. Yeah, it's so important that in working with this, with racism as a heart disease, that we take the time to have a clear diagnosis of the problem. <laughs> Uh, so that we're not quickly trying to fix something before we really understand the conditioning, what's kind of given rise to it. So it's really important in part one of the book to understand how we got here. So there's a lot offered there that supports us in really seeing how the patterns of harm has been passed along from generations. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, it's not something to feel ashamed about. It's something to befriend so that it's not acting out in other ways. You know, when we're unconscious about something, it just repeats itself. Right. And so much has to be um, become more conscious when we're working with race and racial conditioning uh, for us to kind of transcend or transform the habits of harm that we're in. We have to do something fundamentally different than what we've been doing, and that requires that we slow down and look at how we got here. And the truth will set us free. <laughs> but it'll first piss you off. Oh, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> and maybe it may piss off a few other people, too. So let's let's just dive into diagnosis. Yeah. And, yeah. and I would say one of the elephants in the room, or at least in my room, a big elephant, was this term white privilege. You even say in the book that the term white privilege often turns off white individuals and makes them angry. Mm -hmm. And it's not a a term that I particularly liked, Mm -hmm. but I also realize it's a term that I didn't understand. And I am so grateful for you for exploring that in such a compassionate way because the whole point is that I wasn't fully grasping my mm. white privilege. Mm-hmm. And that's the point. I had the privilege right. of not having to grasp that. Yeah. Privilege in and of itself is is a dominant characteristic. So if we're looking at racial dynamics, there's uh, we're all good individuals, right? And we're all part of racial group identities. Some of us know that and some of us don't. So, for example, white people tend to see themselves as good individuals. People of color tend to see themselves as racial group identities. So when we start talking about race, we bring different understanding to the table. Part of being um, a dominant group uh, racially in this country is that characteristic of dominance is that you don't see things. You just don't have to because it's the norm. So it's not, you know, you just don't have to look because everything else in society centers around um, the standard, which is is white, whiteness in our country. Some would call it white supremacy. Some would call it any number of things. But this kind of collective identity uh, of whiteness is what's dominant Mm -hmm. in this culture. So, and it makes sense then that if you're a dominant race, that you wouldn't see privilege because to see privilege is to look at a group identity. And many white people don't associate with being part of a group identity. They associate with being good individuals. Individuals, right. This, that is such, you know, such a critical distinction. Because again, if we can just, you know, diffuse the defensiveness for a second and pause and realize that we're coming at this conversation from two different perspectives, then perhaps we can hear each other differently. Yeah, I think that, that there would. Because when white people come into the conversation and and people of color get upset about something that they've said, uh, if white people take that personally, then it's coming from a perspective of individually, I'm hurt. But if white people can see that uh, oftentimes what people of color bring to the discussion is a group historic perspective. Um, and often, you know, it's, it's kind of like 
the, the dynamic of oppression, dominance, and subordination in our country is real. Mm -hmm. So people of color come to the conversation with a real understanding of being subordinated by dominant white culture as a collective. But white individuals don't see that collective dynamic. They see themselves as just good people. And I'm right. here to listen, but it's it's without roots. And they might be good people. <laughs> and they are good people. Right. No, some of my best friends right. are good. But, you know, they're, they're, the lack of rootedness, the amnesia of history, of right. legacy, of, of the history in this country, no association with that. I'm just a good individual. Uh, and that should be enough, and it's really not. But that, again, that distinction really helped drive the point home for me. Yeah. Because we're just, we're really coming at it from, right. from a different angle. There right. was a, there was a quote you had in the book about white privilege. Hmm. And I, I think this might also help people understand a little bit more when we, when we use that term. Whites have the privilege of choosing whether to challenge the status quo. Because of the unacknowledged benefits of not challenging the status quo, many whites choose silence distance and safety over the discomfort of change, intimacy, and more honesty. This is how privilege works. Yeah. And there's a collusive nature in privilege. You know, the, there's characteristics of privilege that gets played out collectively. And I talk about it as blindness, sameness, and silence. And how these dynamics, you know, the silence that can happen when there's, when when white people are in a group with each other and they they something goes down or something's said, but nothing's acknowledged about what was said, and yet everybody's feeling it but not speaking to it is is one of the ways that privilege stays in place because what happens there is people are colluding with an unacknowledged racial group identity. Mm -hmm. You know, you know it's there if you get outside of the box of it, but it's not acknowledged. It's still people in it still consider themselves good individuals. It's a very important dynamic to tune into and unpack a bit mm -hmm. uh, around where it's because fundamental in those dynamics of collusion, blindness, sameness, silence, um, you're afraid. There's fear there. Right. Afraid of not knowing what to do. Afraid, afraid of, of not knowing what to do and on some level afraid of losing membership mm. in a white, unclaimed racial group identity. Right. You know? One thing also, I mean, you, there's the, the individual identity and the group identity. And mm -hmm. then another thing that I really appreciated that you had laid out in the book were the common, let's say, common stereotypical narratives mm -hmm. of, um, and for the purposes of, the di of this discussion, we'll say the narratives of white people and the narratives of people of color. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so I pulled out three yeah. of each. So mm -hmm. I'll, let's go through the narratives, the mm -hmm. common narratives that white people use, um, and let's unpack those first. Yeah. I don't see color. Aren't we all the same? Why are people of color so angry with me? I wasn't living at that time. I don't know how to have this conversation without feeling blamed, guilty, frustrated, or angry. Yes. These are common ways that, I mean, I've even heard um, people say, oh, I'm just going to listen. I'm not going to say anything because I'll just get nailed again. Um, this sense of... Um, uh, First of all, not understanding why this is such a big deal. Uh, and secondly, we could just all get in a room together and hash it out, but 
You know, there's so many episodes of anger. Um, and I don't need to go somewhere and be beat up again. I mean, who needs this? These are, these are examples of privilege in a way to, again, the opting in, the opting out. This is a common way that we miss each other. The privilege of being able to retreat to a corner yeah. and, and just yeah. say, mm, this is too messy. I yeah. don't really want to deal with this. That's right. Let's just go back to the, I don't see color. That yeah. is, that's one, one way to piss off. Pretty instantly, I think. Any any person of color, <laughs> That's right? right. And let's just say that it's well-intended. It is well-intended. And one of the things I talk about in the book is the difference between intent and impact. Um, and so it is good intention, but the impact can be, um, you know, whitewashing, to say the least. Right. When you don't see color, it's um, it strikes me as not seeing me in the fullness of my experience, mm-hmm. to not see color is to uh, assume on some level, whether you know it or not, that we're all good individuals and we're all the same. To not see color is what gives birth to all lives matter as opposed to black lives matter. You know, it's it's not seeing the, the what I talk often about, the stars and the constellations. I love that. You know, we can see the single incidence of, let's say, the immigration issue that's going on, you know, whether children should be removed from their parents. And, you know, we can look at that as a single isolated incident or occurrence. That's the stars. Or you can look at the constellation where you can look across the globe and see what's happening to dark bodies. And you can see the prison industrial complex and the healthcare industrial complex and the ways that bodies of color are impacted by gun violence, whether it's through force or through their own owning of, of weapons. You can recognize the constellation when you look at Palestine and Tibet and Syria and some of these. I mean, the, when you when you're not looking at solo incidents, you begin to see the tattoo of of the dynamic of dominance and subordination that is uh, pervasive in our society. So to not see color is to not see the full dimension. It's coming from a white dominance lens of being an individual and looking at isolated incidents without connecting the dots. And oftentimes the dots are impacted. Again, intent impact has greater impact on people of color. So I can't afford to not point these things out and being in a subordinated racial identity group, for example, because my life and my people are impacted if I go silent. So that's a privilege I don't get to have. Yet to point it out is to bump into some of these comments like, oh, you know, I didn't mean it like that. I didn't see, you know, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, I know what you mean. Of course I know what you mean. We're, We're all individuals and we're part of racial group identities. Some of us know that and some of us don't. Thank you for clarifying that because that's a real, I didn't want to bypass that one too quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an important one. So now we'll move on to some of the narratives of people of color. Yeah. Right. We're going to talk about race. This means that in addition to being disturbed by white people's ignorance, I'm going to have to teach white folks what they chose to deny knowing, amnesia of whiteness. Mm -hmm. I'm angry about race, but if I talk about it, I'm labeled the angry person and nobody listens. Mm -hmm. I don't want to keep educating white people about race. They need to do this for themselves. Yeah. And a lot of the themes here from people of color has to do with the cumulative impact, which is what I talk about also in the book. It has to do with 
with um, a legacy of generational oppression that carries an emotional and psychic weight. And so uh, there's a wear and tear, there's a chronic fatigue in many people of color from the exhaustion of the, the invisibility of having to point these microaggressions out so regularly to white people, well-meaning white people, still the energy that it takes to. You know, I, can, I, I can't tell you how many people of color I've counseled where there's such care about how do I say this? How do I say it so that they don't see me a certain way? How do I say it? You know, and then other people just don't give it, you know, just don't worry about it. Uh, But I think there's a lot of invisible labor, uh, emotional labor that happens with people of color when it comes to this uh, conversation. And it's invisible to white people because at at the individual level, they're not plugged in to collective impact. They're not carrying the They're legacy. They're not carrying the right, legacy. Of, They're of not, a community. That's right. It, right. It, it's just a concern. They don't have to be, um, they just don't have to be concerned. And again, that. just just that nuance yeah. of yeah. taking that in helps understand when, you, when observing someone's anger or someone's reaction to something, to, to understand where they're coming from. Right, and right. You, and you touched on something else I want to um, go to. You also advise, while we're on this exploration, while we're going to have this conversation with ourselves, while we're going to look at this and unpack our own feelings around this, we need to bring an ancestor along. We do, yeah. Talk about that for a second. Well, what does I that encourage mean? people to, uh, when they're setting their intention, to really look back on their and their immediate family and maybe beyond to that ancestor who um, stands out around race. Maybe they were rageful and righteous, mm-hmm. or maybe they were protective but couldn't be vocal, or maybe they were afraid but couldn't speak out because they might be disapproved of. And to bring that person along on the journey, to to not see this as just a solo, isolated journey that you're on, but to dignify their existence and how they had to hold this uh, legacy or this kind of inheritance. Mm -hmm. I call it a racial inheritance, Right. right? Right. You know, so we're all kind of influenced by our lineage, whether we know it or not. You know, there's some secrets and stories that are just not spoken and blatant things that people want to hide. And I'm suggesting that in your own heart, you don't have to tell anybody about this. Bring an ancestor who, as you clean up your own kind of um, understanding of racial distress and your contributions and ignorance and well-being in the world, uh, to bring an ancestor along who might have wanted to do that or maybe needed to do that and didn't have, for whatever reason, the ability to do it. Because you do have the privilege to do that now. All well, of us do. We inherit more than hair color and, and uh, yeah. eye color. We inherit belief. Right. And we bring these constructs along with us. Right. You know, there's a beautiful term of, of being a cycle breaker. Mm, that's right. You know, because that's we right. need to ask ourselves, like, what was what was spoken about in your house? That's right. Exactly. What were your parents saying about racism? Or not saying. Or not saying. Yeah. Um, because we, have, we we're bringing that all along with us. We do. And, you know, we carry, many of us carry these stories out of an unconscious loyalty right. to our parents and ancestors. 
and unconscious loyalty, meaning that we're behaving this way because we've learned that this is the way to behave. We got to keep this alive. And we got to keep it alive because they, they love me. Oh, you it's know, them. it's a very unconscious dynamic that needs to be, uh, interrupted and examined to see if it really is true for you. So the cycle breaker yeah. is the healer. You can be the cycle breaker and you can heal those things that you've been lugging Not along. only that, I think it's our duty, actually. I think when our ancestors and parents pass the baton on to us as children, uh, you know, the relay runs, you know, we take the baton, we run, we do our best, right. hopefully elevating the consciousness so that we're not reliving the same things over and over again. It's been transformed for well-being along the way. Well, That's you, our job. Exactly. Well, you also said what's unfinished is reborn. That's right. It is. And so passing that baton and healing that, that leads me to the work that you're dedicated to, which is meditation and using meditation as a tool to help us mm-hmm. to deal with this. We were talking off camera about, let's say, people that are that are going to church. You know, they... they go off to church on Sunday, but they don't bring all of that with them. They don't bring all of that unrest and that anger and that fear. And that's exactly where they need to bring it because Mm. that's where we heal it. Like you Mm -hmm. say, bring your racism to the mat. Mm -hmm. Let's, let's bring that, that emotion to the mat so that we can, we can deal with it. Right. So part one of the book is really helping you understand how we got here and then part two, which is mindfulness or, or heart surgery, is where we bring what we're learning about how we've been conditioned, how we've been habituated. We're bringing all of that, what, what some of us feel is confusion or, or guilt or shame or rage or, or disturbance. We're bringing that to the cushion, the meditation cushion, to then have it be like compost, The meditation process supports a certain composting of the distress so that we end up with some rich soil in the end. But what the composting process is really our capacity to bear witness to the distress and to befriend it and to investigate the deeper stories. Because when we're silent, we have a chance to hear something much deeper than the habitual mind that's running around in our heads. We develop a different relationship with our thoughts. We can be with our thoughts instead of being our thoughts, and that's a real important shift that's a, that's when we're working with distress, racial distress. Absolutely. I think this is also a really good place to just um, point out that I think the reason we're getting uh, tripped up here and triggered is because we're not ready to really have this conversation. Yeah. If we're not first going to take that pause, do this self-exploration, explore our family lineage Mm -hmm. and our beliefs Mm -hmm. and to check in. And that's why we're coming at it. We're, you know, we're not realizing I've got an, an individual identity. I've got a group. It's just loggerheads and it's just shutting the whole thing down. So this is what I love about your use of meditation as a tool. And you say in the book, the best tool I know to transform our relationship to racial suffering is mindfulness meditation. I was attracted to this practice because my habitual ways of relating to racial distress were not working. I was a righteous rager. And I know you had (laughs) mentioned that, but you know, it makes sense. It's like we're chasing our tail. 
That's right. What happened is in those moments we're triggered without realizing it. And we're trying to do something with all that energy we feel. And what we do with that energy we feel is, is what we habitually do. So we're flipped right in the habit energy without choosing. Mm-hmm. And mindfulness meditation supports you in not flipping anywhere, but just kind of softening into the moment to know it's not going to kill you, this energy that I think we're really afraid of. Right. Right? So it's about befriending this energy. And the mindfulness meditation instructions that I'm offering, the first one in the book, of course, is really developing a relationship with ease and calm, where we we come back to the body and the breath, being aware of the body and the breath, because it's always in the present moment. Because when we flip out in this anxiety and reactivity, we're leaving the premises. That's a great metaphor also. Yeah. It's like you're just gone. You are You've gone. You've left the room. And it really is a felt sense. You can feel the difference between leaving the room when you're in those moments and, and returning back to the present moment. So this is a practice. This is a, a healing um, routine of of great hygiene (laughs) that we can put in the category of brushing our teeth, combing our hairs, taking a bath, learning to sit and develop a relationship with ease in the present moment without believing your thoughts, without leaving and running off on extraneous um, fears and morphs. I mean, the the present situation often is horrible enough. We don't have to add all these extra layers to it. But can we be with it? Nelson Mandela says, if you can sit in the seat of insanity and dislike without having a need for it to be different, then you are free. And I think that quote really speaks to uh, freedom is, um, he was free way before he was out of prison. Because I think he worked with his mind, you know. I think he worked with the fact that you can be free regardless of the circumstances that you're in. And this has been my experience with mindfulness meditation, a sense of momentary, increasing moments of freedom that I can have right here and now, regardless of the circumstances that I'm in. So you get triggered. Mm-hmm. What would the conversation be for yourself in meditation? You take that to your mat. Yeah, and sometimes I don't have a, the luxury of going to a mat. I have to just take a breath Wherever it is. right where I am, right? right? First, there's a recognizing of what's happening. Oh, I'm pissed off. Oh, no, he didn't do that. You know, I mean, there's a recognition of of this um, upset. So you recognize it. Acknowledging it. it. And then you allow it to be there. And sometimes, this is a RAIN acronym that I talk about in the book. You recognize what's happening. Then you allow it to be there and just say, yes, this is crazy. This actually happened. Because sometimes we flip into, I'm not allowing it. But we have to flip into, this is how it is right now in this moment. In this moment, this is how it is. Can I just take a breath and be with this? Let me regroup, find the ground beneath my feet, settle into this body so that I can then investigate, which is what the I is about, investigate, you know, so what are my options here? What am I feeling? What am I believing? What am I feeling urgent about? What am I afraid of? How old is this feeling? 
you know. This meditation is going to take four hours. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but it, it, it doesn't actually take that long no, once teasing. you get it, you know. Right. And then the N in the RAIN acronym, after you've investigated and you're looking at this, and I, again, you're looking at it in a sense of being centered in your seat. You know, again, we have to cultivate the calm with the body and the breath first before we can really investigate. So we might have a meditation period for a while where we're just being with the body and the breath just easing ourselves, just knowing that we can know the experience of ease and calm. We need to know that from the inside. And once we feel a certain sense of stability, you know, then we can start exploring these different questions of, you know, what is this feeling? Is this, is this fear? Is it anxiety? Or am I excited? And am I hopeful? And where did this come from? And how old is this? You know, right. the number of questions in the book. Then we nurture what's needed in that right. moment. That's the end. What am I needing in this moment that can actually be a comfort to me right here and now? It has nothing to do with solving the issue out there. Right. It has to do with how do I love myself right in this moment so that I'm choosing, so that I'm, I'm attending to what's upsetting in this moment. I was just teasing you about the time it's going to take. Mm -hmm. It's just because initially it seems like a lot because we have to bring that all with us exactly. and, and connect all of those dots because that's where the healing happens. That's the internal work that has to be right. done. That's what we avoid right? Uh, uh, because we, we have a false belief that if we do something, anything, that's going to help. And I'm more concerned about pouncing on activity before you understand the impact that it has uh, and to really take a little time to be more choiceful and to understand our impact and to uh, be more um, discerning about how we use our energy and where we use it so that we're not burning out. And so um, we're being heard and we're connecting. And that the connection is right. happening, that you haven't fled the premises, you know, left, left the domain. Right. Yeah. That pause, you know, calms our entire nervous system. That's right. Suddenly, we, we're open to hear. That's right. We're exactly. open to see. We're open mm -hmm. to experience. And that, again, rolls right into, okay, if I can just sit for a moment and be quiet, I can observe you in a very different way. That's right. I can see where you're coming from. What identity, what racial group yeah. identity are you? And fundamentally, I think what we're learning is that we can pause, that we can interrupt our habitual, really I mean, that we, we really can pause. We don't have to we have, have a... We, we can do it. We can learn how to do that. And, and it is about pushing through that pain a little bit because as, yes, a, as opposed yes. to either flying off the handle or completely right. retreating, there That's is something right. in the middle. And like That's you say, right. the gray right. area is messy. It's messy. But this is where we can solve the problems. We touched on the um, individual and racial group identities. But again, that's not just about whether you're a white person or you're a person of color. There, mm -hmm. We have many identity groups. Yes, we do. Right? Yeah. You touch about that, touch on that in the book, um, that we, example of identities include religion, education, marital status, uh, age, physical and mental abilities, talent, gender identity, sexual orientation, economic class, country of birth, race, and then how that plays into dominant and subordinate. That's right. That's right. So, you know, uh, uh, so the dominant racial groups 
can readily identify with all of the other identities except race. <laughs> you know, it's not right. always, um, you know, like family or religion or um, gender identity. But when it comes to race, it's a little harder to identify with. I mean, these, there's the, the intersectionality of all of these different racial identities are at play. Intersectionality is a term that was mostly referenced to uh, marginalized people to talk about the complexity of all of our subordinated racial group identities. Like I'm um, a black woman, lesbian, Buddhist, you know, these are all in our check, context check, check. <laughs> of subordinated <laughs> right. identities. Right. You know, so intersectionality would speak to the complexity of all those things together being then played out in the world. Uh, it's not just race. It's, it's more complicated than that. And most of my identities are subordinated. But I think we can all relate to both subordinated or, or uh, dominant, you know, groups, not so much racial groups. As a parent and as a grandmother, you know, I'm in a dominant group, for example, right. in the world. So I think we can all step into experiences, you know, uh, as a writer, you know, I could I could be maybe considered in a dominant group with people that haven't published or, you know, we can get a taste of what it's like to kind of be in that place. And then we're kind of challenged with how, how we work with our own power base. It's another important construct. You said dominant and subordinated group dynamics are deep in our psyche and are reflected in the world in which we live. This is our social conditioning cultivated over many generations, mm -hmm. approved by some, glossed over by others, and gravely impacting most. Yeah, it's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, this power dynamic is so important to see. And you can't see the power dynamic of dominance and subordination if you're just looking at it from an individual lens. Right. The only way to understand it is at group level. It's the constellation, not the isolated incidents. Right. And it's know? funny. It's like I said you were shifting the conversation, but I think you're actually giving people binoculars to take a look. That's true. You know, yeah. to really do this observation, because there's another great quote, racism occurs when dominant group culture, whether knowingly or unknowingly, both now and in the past, imposes its values and beliefs on other races as a social norm and standard. Racism mm -hmm. is difficult to comprehend when we look from the individual identity lens. To understand racism is to examine not only the system, policies and practices that ensure it, but also the forces that resist changing it. Yeah. At the individual level, we can all have biases. At the group, I, uh, racial group identity level, we can all discriminate. But racism is part of the institutions. It's part of the policies, practices, um, social norms, the body in our uh, culture that influences standards and what's in, who's in, who's out. That's where racism lives. Race, I seldom use the word racist. I use racism to really point to the system. And I use biases, not that individuals can't do racist acts. But I think that power happens in collective form, whether knowingly or unknowingly, consciously or not. So it's really important to really see how this, this plays out. You know, we can see, we can look at the constellation of um, the two guys that went in the Starbucks, you know. I mean, that could be a solo incident of seeing 
that the, somebody called, you know, the manager called the police. We can look at that as a solo incident. But when you add that incident to the five black women that were playing golf, to the black woman that's sleeping at Yale and took a nap and somebody called the police, at the, I mean, I mean, there's just a whole series of incidents that we can start to see the constellation, the, 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 the way that the groups are targeted unconsciously and seen as criminals or suspect or having to prove a sense of belonging. Uh, what is that compared to? That's compared to some kind of standard and some kind of permission that people have to call the police when they feel individually threatened without understanding the collective impact of calling the police right. and the impulses that can happen in a situation like that where you could end up dead pretty much. This is one of the things that you suggest in the book that I think was a really powerful takeaway and these are your racial affinity groups. Yes. And when I first read this term, again it seemed counterintuitive. How is it going to help racism if I as a white person go and convene with a bunch of other white people? Mm -hmm. And then it goes back to something that I said a little bit earlier. It's because I'm not ready to have this conversation yet until I do my work, until I unpack what is it that we have been perpetuating? What is it we as white people have been as a community ingrained with? Yeah. What is the, you know, so talk what's about the, the program. What's the yes. programming? Yes. So could you speak about racial affinity groups? It's, of course. In the book, I'm talking about two structures that are important for us to wake and un unpack our conditioning. One is through meditation, where we really look at how we're stimulated and, and bring it, bringing it to the cushion, as we talked about. And the other is racial affinity group. It's a mindfulness structure where um, white people get together with other white people, people of color get together with other people of color in their own race, ideally, and we begin to have some very intimate conversations about how we're thinking, what we're believing, how we've been conditioned. And the reason this is important is because I think because of the emotional labor in society where people of color are constantly educating white people on whiteness, that what a racial affinity group does is it supports, it does a number of things, but it especially supports white people in waking up to their own racial group identity and doing that work of understanding their collect, themselves as a collective and the collective impact that they have in the world mm -hmm. and, and their membership in these different social realms. The, the white conversation has not been a conversation that we've heard much about. I've had so many white people say to me, when I get together with other white people, I don't know what... I don't know if we can have this conversation without people of color. I mean, I, I, I feel like they need to teach us. And it's like, well, no, you need to learn about whiteness. You need to learn about why it's difficult to be with other white people. You just have to allow yourself race. to feel it. I mean, yeah. what do you need to be taught? You know what I'm saying? It's like you really have to actually right. say, you know what? I'm willing to explore this. Right. I'm willing to explore this. And it just starts with someone saying, hey, what, right. what's coming up for you? What was the conversation in your house growing up? Right. And in the book, you know, as you know, there's a, um, a, a very prescribed structure to set up a racial affinity group. It's very simple. You get together with three to five people. You commit to this inquiry for about a year. You can meet once a month for a few hours. 
And there's specific questions, about 50 questions, that over time you begin to talk about. And there's a structure around safety, confidentiality, um, how you support each other in these groups. But what's so important is that you have a safe place mm -hmm. where you can begin to explore your racial conditioning, where you don't have to be blamed, shamed, uh, defend yourself, and so on. And people of color need to do this as well. Because our focus often has been on uh, things outside of ourselves. You know, what people of color share in common is oppression. So we have a common enemy, you know, and our energy can be so focused sometimes outside of ourselves that we haven't gotten a chance to really know our own membership in an intimate way. So it's a similar issue, but different. Right. And we, too, have to come together and really look at the impact of internalized oppression, for example, and how that plays in the body of color and how we have missed each other uh, in our effort to fix the outside issues, oftentimes without talking about how we've been impacted by it. Right. But this is the beautiful thing because it gives us something to like latch on to. It yeah, gives us something to say, yeah. you know what? Okay, I, I can do something here. That's right. Right. I can That's heal right. this because right now... It felt like we were making progress, and then I don't know. I don't know. Are we making progress in this in with in terms of racism? I mean, I think we're in in pretty dire straits right now, and I think we've kicked a hornet's nest. And I think we need to come to the table, and we need to do something about it. Yeah, there's a lot that needs to be done. I mean, uh, the the book is not intended to stop people from doing their social activism work. But it is a, an opportunity for people to look at how they're going about doing that, the character that they bring to social justice activity, a sense of understanding who they are and how they've been conditioned is so important. <laughs> you know, I used to consult. I don't know if this story is going to be helpful, uh, but I'm a life coach, and I worked with a woman who was very active in the environmental social justice and she was talking about toxic waste and how horrible this was and how we had to do something and involved in all these groups. And there was all this um, energy. And I said, tell me about what it was like growing up. And before she realized that she talked about how toxic her environment was at home. Mm. And I said, you know, do you think there could be a, a relationship yeah, right. here to looking at how we project the issue out externally? And it's not hard to do because it's there. I mean, everything we see is a projection of heart and mind, quite honestly. So, of course, you're going to find the issue out there. But when do we attend to it in here? Mm -hmm. And that's that's my prayer. That's what I want for people. I want them to really connect the dots, to see that um, that the stuff that's happening out here is not just out there. It's in here. And that we need to have a different relationship on the inside, uh, that that's going to support our, our heart intention. It's going to really be good for us and wholesome and healing for us to make sure uh, the issue is not just outside of ourselves. So the most beautiful thing is that in dealing with this really, really enormous topic and trying to do it justice um, and trying to cover a lot of ground, I feel like your voice and this book and this message gives us hope. Because I do feel like we're at an impasse and we don't know how to have this conversation. Mm -hmm. And you've given us a lot of tools and a lot of ways in which 
we can avoid retreating or we can avoid lashing out or we can Mm -hmm. avoid, you know, leaving our bodies and leaving the room. You say, with respect to hope, even though this book is not about eliminating racial justice or solving social inequities, we can be hopeful. Racial distress can be useful. It invites us to question how we live our lives. We can become more choiceful through mindfulness practice. We can stop the war within our own hearts and minds. And if we can stop the war within our own hearts and minds, then we can let that trickle on out. Yeah. Right? I think we have to think about what is our vision of racial healing? I mean, what do we see when we look out there if there's not an issue? A part of me wants to make sure nobody feels afraid of having this conversation, even though I know fear might be there. But my hope is that we can engage each other at such a human level that um, nobody has to shrink and, and run to their corners and protect themselves. No one's in danger. That's my, my hope uh, in this book in a large way, that we're developing some skills and some awareness to understand uh, the human condition right, and to bring the heart right into the center of it so that we don't forget that we belong to each other. May the heart opening begin and the healing emerge, right? (laughs) Exactly. I want to thank you, Ruth, for your courageous work in this realm, really, truly, and for this beautiful book, your voice and your, your candor and willingness to have this conversation. I do want to just ask you, I was, I was initially going to have you guide us, uh, in a meditation to close, but that was until I read the last passage in this book, Mm -hmm. which just cracked me open. And I would love for you to help close this conversation by reading it. Ah, it would be my pleasure. May we understand and transform racial habits of harm. May we remember that we belong to each other. May we grow in our awareness that what we do can help or hinder racial well-being. May our thoughts and actions reflect the world we want to live in and leave behind. May we heal the seeds of separation inherited from our ancestors in gratitude for this life. May all beings, without exception, benefit from our growing awareness. May our thoughts and actions be ceremonies of well-being for all races. May we honor being diverse racial beings among the human race and beyond race. And may we meet the racial cries of the world with as much wisdom and grace as we can muster. <sighs> I've never cried in an interview yet. <laughs> but there's a first for oh, everything. Oh, is there a first oh. time? Thank you so oh, much. Oh, what a delightful oh, time. Yay. <laughs> Thank you. Your voice is salve for the soul. Mm. Your voice and your work and every person needs to get this book in their hands. I mean, and get a piece of Ruth King. I mean, honestly, I mean, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you. This has been beautiful. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast. Learn more at bestselfmedia.com.